Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. I'm Ola Salem, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. With me today is Zahra Hankir. She's a Lebanese-British journalist, editor of Women on the Ground, and most recently, author of Eyeliner, A Culture History. Zahra traces the history of eyeliner from the ancient Egyptian queen Nefertiti to modern-day dancers in India and guy shoes in Japan. Zahra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ala. I'm so excited to chat today. Oh, so am I. <laughs> I have to say, after reading your book, um, I can't look at eyeliner the same way again. Uh, I didn't realize before reading your book, it's like, you know, how this small thing that many of us take for granted has actually meant so much more for so many people. And, you know, as well as a cosmetic, you know, product, it has been a status signifier and even a tool of rebellion. Just before we delve into your book on the history of eyeliner, I wanted to ask you, why eyeliner? Yeah, it's a great question. Firstly, I want to say your eyeliner today is impeccable. So thank you. Ah, as is yours. In there. <laughs> um, I mean, eyeliner is ubiquitous. So you, you kind of touched on that. It's almost like we see it everywhere, but I don't think people really see it for what it is and the depth that it carries and sort of the layers of history that it carries within it. And I had been um, wearing eyeliner for, you know, really since I was about 12 or 13 years old. As I was coming of age, it was sort of the most important makeup product in my arsenal of makeup products. When I wasn't wearing any other makeup, I would always be wearing eyeliner. I initially was attracted to it because my mother used to put it on every morning in a very ritualistic way. Um, when we lived in the UK, she, you know, she was a mother of six. She had so much going on in life and she was missing her family back home in Lebanon because we're Lebanese. And still every morning she kind of made the time to put the eyeliner on. It was like a moment of self-care that kind of transported her. And also, as you know, you know, the eyeliner that many people from the global South wear and use does not look like Western eyeliner. The, the pots are quite ornate. Um, the, the product itself or the pigment itself is quite different than what you would find in a drugstore. Um, so I always sort of have this understanding that this object connected me to something bigger than, you know, what, what people assumed eyeliner to be. And that was actually to my heritage, right? And to, you know, the Arab world and to, I'm also part Egyptian to being, you know, part Egyptian. And I didn't learn the historical elements of it until later on as I was growing up. But I still gleaned, I still had this idea that this object connected my mother and therefore me to something else, to, to our home and our heritage. So that's sort of like an overview of why I'm attracted to the product itself and to the history of the product. And then it wasn't until obviously much later on when I was exploring book ideas, I thought, wow, this could actually make for a really interesting book because it's an important product, not just in my region of origin and your region of origin, but also across the global South, right? And and in so many different ways. Yeah. I mean, you do something which I think people rarely do, which is, I mean, you took something that people wouldn't take so seriously, you know, a makeup product. And you took us through this journey um, through time, geography, to show us how it can be taken very seriously. And it should be because it's like the symbol of power, the symbol of uh, womanhood, health, uh, you know, politics and so much more. I just want to, like, you know, how did you turn it into something so serious? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a good question. And I have been asked, actually, if sort of this 
um, attention given to a makeup product or a cosmetic is in some way a little bit damaging because it plays into this idea of like women are expected to look a certain way and to make themselves up in a certain way. But the thing is, and what I try to say is that this is not just a makeup product. I mean, it is not to me, it's, it's not just a cosmetic, right? It carries within it um, so much meaning that goes far beyond beauty. And you've already touched on some of it. So, you know, historically and through the centuries, eyeliner has been used as a form of conveying a person's spirituality or their religiosity. And we can get into that a little bit later on. Um, it can be a way to sort of repel the evil eye. It has been used medicinally to treat the eye of various eye ailments, such as conjunctivitis. It's been used to strengthen the eyelashes. It's been used to um, protect against the glare of the sun. And it has been used as a form of like preserving and maintaining one's heritage and celebrating that heritage, particularly for people in the diaspora. And then also, you know, amongst Bedouin communities, this has been something that they've been doing for centuries and they continue to do it as a way of sort of maintaining that tradition. So to me, it's not just makeup. So when, when somebody sort of brings that argument to me, I immediately say, well, that's not really, it's not the same as other forms of adornment, even though other forms of adornment can carry also different types of meanings that go beyond beauty as well. But it's just, it's extremely profound. And I just, I, I'm personally no longer look at eyeliner in the same way. I always knew it carried weight, but I didn't realize it carries this much weight. And I always say now that when I put my eyeliner on in the morning, it feels heavier to me. You know, the, the, the applicator feels heavier to me now. Yep. So, you know, part of, um, a part of the book you talk about growing up, um, in England and as, you know, a Lebanese woman and, you know, I discovered and was very excited about that. You had uh, Egyptian roots as well. Um, so you talk about how you kind of wanted to blend in, um, into this Western society. And I really saw parts of myself in that because I was born in Egypt, you know, I'm an Egyptian woman. I was born in Egypt and just under four months, that's when my family moved to England. Um, and I grew up there and, that was also what I wanted to do. I just wanted to blend in, you know, and obviously I looked different. I was in a different shape. My hair was curly. Um, I don't have white skin. Um, had all these um, Middle Eastern features and Egyptian features. And I, for a long time, didn't want those features because I just wanted to blend in. And I really, reading what you went through and going through the same thing, it was just really fascinating that you kind of found confidence in eyeliner. And and I still remember how there was um, one assembly in school uh, where the teachers were kind of like telling the students they shouldn't wear such bold eye makeup. And everybody looked at me because they knew, like the, the teachers were referencing me. But I mean, that didn't stop me. I just, I've always loved eyeliner and the confidence and it just gives me and like the confidence it even gives people when I kind of play with eyeliner with them. And so it made me think of the first time I wore eyeliner. And I wonder if you remember the first time um, you wore eyeliner. Um, thank you for sharing that because um, I was a little bit hesitant at first to sort of include those personal anecdotes, but it really was a part of sort of my journey of sort of coming of age and, and self-acceptance. Because when you are growing up, I mean, many people in the diaspora and, and women, people of color will relate, but when you are growing up in sort of a predominantly white 
society and you're sort of trying to fit in and come to terms with like just growing up by itself is difficult, but then growing up as someone who feels like they're being othered, um, you are constantly sort of looking to, there's this fine line, I think, between wanting to assimilate, but also wanting to express your sort of your, yourself and your heritage in a way. And that's a delicate dance that I definitely um, experienced. So thank you for sharing that you went through something similar. I think um, uh, it was, or I recall the first time that I wore eyeliner quite vividly, because it was um, applied to my eyes by an older friend of mine. Her name is May, an Egyptian girl. Um, and we had bonded because like, you know, clearly we, we were, um, you know, non, non-British, you know, and, um, and Arab and, and we related to one another and we came from conservative, um, um, homes as well. And I was just hanging out with her one day and she just said, Hey, let me sort of make you over. And then she applied the eyeliner quite sort of vividly and distinctly to my eyes. And uh, that was the first time I, I saw myself in eyeliner. And I say in the book that I felt like I had come into focus for the first time, because as I'm sure you will have experienced too, it's like the way that it stencils the eyes kind of makes the eyes pop in a way and accentuates, especially if you're of like Arab or Middle Eastern background, we already have these like big eyes, right? But it like accentuates them, makes them really pop. And um, I feel like that was the first time that I looked at myself and thought like, oh, I, I can see, like, I could see that I'm like a girl, like growing up, you know, and that's such a vivid, vivid memory for me. And I, I will always remember May for that reason, because she was, she had that confidence, right? And I was like trying to emulate that because she was older than me. So um, yeah, that was the first of many times and also the first of many bonding experiences that I've had with women over the years who wear eyeliner. You know, I've put on eyeliner in like school bathrooms behind my teacher's bag or like I, I did it like, you know, in, in nightclubs in Beirut with my friends. You know, we, we, we have we all have these like unique memories of like when we put our eyeliner on. And it's often a communal event, I like to say, because it's such a it's, it's like a very precise art that you have to learn and pick up sometimes. So it can be helpful to experience that with groups. So I want to talk about your first chapter. You write, Nefertiti was firmly established in Western minds as a beauty icon and a symbol of female empowerment. Now, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that she became basically the golden standard for exotic beauty in the West? Yeah, this is such a great question. It's something I have been pondering for years um, now. I think it's important to know that our conception of Nefertiti's beauty derives from her bust, right? Her bust was excavated um, by archaeologists from the deserts of Egypt um, over 100 years ago and um, then transported. I like to put transported in like quote quotations because like I would say that it was stolen <laughs> or like, you know, um, and that, that the bus should return to Egypt, but transported to, um, to Berlin and then displayed to the public in um, 1923, 1924, the, the pictures of her were released in 1923, and then the public was able to visit her in 1924. Now, at this point in time, um, the image of her, this this sort of perfectly symmetrical face with very sharp, angular features with heavily lined um, eyes, I wouldn't even say heavily, I would say it's kind of subtle, actually, but distinct, subtle but distinct, um, and then with the very high sort of crown, she has like an, a slightly androgynous look, but she's also just very regal. And I think that people were very taken aback by this idea of this being an Egyptian queen and also to them being um, almost 
palatable because she was presented in such a way that they would find attractive, but not too different than their, their own features or, the, or themselves. It's almost like a sort of, um, they can see themselves in it, but then they also notice that she's also exotic, right? And um, there's a lot of uh, um, speculation as to the to whether or not the bust itself is is real. I mean, generally, um, generally, archaeologists believe it to be an authentic bust, but that's how much speculation or like swirling narratives there were around Nefertiti because she was so beautiful. It was almost like, can she be truly a woman of color or an Egyptian queen? Can she be this beautiful? Or actually, is she, you know, is she actually European? And is this bust even real? So that's sort of the extent to which people were fascinated by her beauty. Um, and I think also the, um, uh, let me be clear, she was definitely a woman of color and an Egyptian queen. I just want to say that I'm just noting, I, I'm just noting the, the sort of speculation around, around her looks. Um, I think also at the time, sort of the, 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 the beauty world, so to speak, was quite fertile at the time because it was like, you know, an, an era of sort of like women, you know, experimenting with their looks, wearing makeup, flappers, you know, had become a thing. And, um, this was like, a a time, a time period during which women were experimenting with their looks. So now they had this image of this like very beautiful queen that they wanted to emulate or they sought to emulate in some way. And how would you do that? Right. You would do that by trying to mimic the way this person looks and the tools that they used were eyeliner. Um, sometimes they wore high hats and big collar necklaces, as you know, she, she, you know, wore this big collar necklace and, you know, busts or replicas of the bust started to appear all around the world in like hair salons in, in America, for example, where people start to emulate her look. So I feel like there's an almost an enigma about her um, based solely on the bust. Also, we don't know much about her life. That's what's so interesting about Nefertiti. We have some like sort of overarching facts that we know about her, but there's still a lot of question marks about her. But we do know that she ruled alongside her husband, Akhenaten, at a very sort of um, revolutionary time in ancient Egypt, and that she held quite a, um, a, a serious position or place of authority alongside him when he wielded his power. So she wasn't sort of like a submissive, timid queen. She really did have major impact. So I think the combination of those two things, of knowing that she had this sort of very important place in Egyptian history, her beauty as it is depicted on the bust, and then knowing also that we don't really know everything about her. All of these things combined just make her, I think, such a sort of special, um, very fascinating figure in history. Right. I mean, one of the quotes that you had in the book, which was, I mean, I found it quite horrifying, to be honest, uh, from this 1945 feature from Vogue and Vanity Fair that described Umar Khazum as, um, quote unquote, not beautiful. Um, and, you know, they talk about how women like Egyptian women in general were not beautiful so it it yeah that was uh I mean how did you feel when you read that absolutely the same it's why I included the quote again I think there was this obsession of trying to understand why are we so attracted to this you know bust what is it about her and it's like simultaneously the attraction is because she's exotic looking but also that they're almost sort of repulsed by the idea that they would be attracted to something exotic looking yeah, no, definitely. Like, it just, I found it really amazing that you dug up all these old stories from the 30s and um, even before of, you know, capturing what news stories in the West were saying 
A, after the bust was discovered, and then B, talking about uh, Arab women. And it's just, it's really fascinating to, I mean, like, kudos to you to do that. Um, and um, I do wonder, I mean, because I think you traveled to Berlin, right, to see the bust in person. How did it feel to learn about Middle East and your, you know, heritage in the West, from the West? This is this is a tricky one because you know I grew up I grew up in in the UK as I mean you you spent some of your life there too and um you know I I put a lot of effort into learning about my own region through to the best of my ability people who wrote about our own about the region who come from the region and as you know with my first book I try to amplify those voices you know people from the region who write about our region I think um, this chapter on Nefertiti was to understand what her place was in Western society to situate her within the growth trajectory of eyeliner. She played a really big role there. And therefore, to do that, to learn about the history of how she was perceived, I had to um, you know, look at primarily Western sources and how she was written about. And the discourse around her was so Orientalist. And nothing that, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have potentially guessed in a way, but when you really delve into it, uh, some of it was really, um, uh, sh- I mean, shocking in a way, maybe not shocking. I remember there's one point in a Vogue piece where where the author says something like, you know, these veiled Muslim women, like teasing us men. And like, then he mentioned something about their hygiene. And, and I'm like, oh, you know, this this kind of thing is really disturbing, but important to understand how she was perceived and then therefore an extension of how like women like us might have been perceived at that time or maybe continue to be perceived in different ways right and one component of the research which i particularly enjoyed that i'm sure you can relate to is how nefertiti is viewed in egypt right and the differences between how she's written about in egypt or in our region of origin and how she's written about in the west and how she's celebrated as this like queen and icon of beauty and power in in a very sort of um, honorific way in Egypt, and then seeing sort of how the discourse was quite different in the West. So that was interesting to compare the two. And, um, you know, that's that's something that I think probably you're aware of in Egypt, like her her place in Egypt. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, looking at the, the other thing I was, you know, thinking about is, you know, she obviously she was seen as the golden standards of exotic beauty in the West, but it made me think about how in the East until today, there's still the the golden standard of beauty is still very, you know, to have a Caucasian look, to be white, to have, you know, white skin, uh, straight hair, blue eyes, and uh, the fairer, the better, you know, just, um, and there's still, you know, so much racism towards dark skinned um, Arabs and um, a dislike for curly hair and dark hair. And like, you know, I mean, I, I remember growing up and being taught, you know, before the hair straightener, before GHD era of ways of how to kind of like tie your hair around your head to kind of like, and they called it dawama to straighten it. And, um, you know, all these beauty products, even like this whole industry was very lovely of, um, these products being sold to us to kind of get us to be more white. Um, I just I, I just found it interesting the uh, how you know this Egyptian woman was admired 
in the West, whilst we are we were still and until today trying to look more Western. Unfortunately, a hundred years later, not much has changed. That's what I try to argue in the book. I say that Nefertiti was the original beauty influencer because I still I, I feel like you know she very clearly influenced makeup trends and eyeliner, you know, throughout the nineteen hundreds based on the research that I did, but. I think it's important to note also that while women were emulating her in certain ways, they were cherry picking. So they were cherry picking the eyeliner. There were pieces in in, in beauty magazines that said, don't darken your skin, though. Like that's dark skin is not something that you should do, you know, cautioning against looking too exotic. Right. And you still see that kind of cherry picking today actually in a more enhanced way because of social media. And I mentioned in the final chapter of the book, you know, the, the quote unquote Instagram face, the, this is a term that Gia Tolentino of the New Yorker came up with, you know, this idea of like having an amalgamation of different features. We've kind of moved on from the Instagram face to like what, what I would call the snatched face now, but it's still this idea of let's take certain features from different ethnic and racial groups and apply them to a Eurocentric face, right? So you're still very much adhering to that white sort of supremacist view of beauty, but you're actually, you know, taking some exotic features um, to meet certain trends, so so called trends, when really these are not trends, these are features that people are are, you know, from from our ethnicities uh, and, and ethnic backgrounds are born with, right? So that trend still exists today. It's still just as problematic. Fox eye is a trend that I mentioned in the book, which is like a, a trend that many models popularize where they try to make the eye look like lengthen the eye to make it look slightly slanted, which of course is very, very um, offensive to people of particular backgrounds who have eyes that are shaped that way naturally, right? So, you know, these, and I, and I quote some of these um, people who criticize that as being offensive to them and, and, you know, particularly East Asian, people of East Asian origin. So, I mean, this was something that um, was striking to me, how a hundred years later, really not much has changed, even though there have been efforts to diversify the beauty industry and to celebrate, um, you know, diverse, uh, um, or, you know, I hate using the word diverse sometimes, but like different types of beauty, um, we still we still have a long way to go. I think, I mean, I think the idea is you really should be, rather than fetishizing, you should be humanizing. And if you are, you know, using certain elements of a culture that have been celebrated and used in that culture for centuries, then there should at least be some sensitivity towards that and acknowledgement of that. One question I think I haven't touched upon about, you know, I I did get, I understood it from your book and I, I do want to hear it from you though, is how would you define how eyeliner is tied to power and for women in particular? I mean, it's extremely inherently tied, I think. And I explore, as you know, many different cultures in the book um, where it is used as a tool to convey some form of, let's say, agency. Um, And I think the two that really come to mind are firstly the Mexican-American Chola community, and that is sort of the group um, in in um, predominantly well in in the United States, but predominantly in California, um, who really have a very distinct aesthetic. And as part of that aesthetic, they line their eyes quite heavily. And the and the sort of roots of that aesthetic were actually born in the uh, climate of discrimination that Mexican Americans experienced when they came to America. And as part of that sort of um, reaction to the to the pressure to assimilate, 
they actually came up with a very, very um, distinct look. It started as a Pachuca look and then it became a Chola look. So therefore, it's inherently tied to their identity, right? The wearing of eyeliner in a particular way, which, you know, goes sort of goes back to how women wore eyeliner in Mexico um, and continue to um, has to do with sort of a form of pride of their own, you know, look and their aesthetic, right? So they're proud, they're brown, they're saying, this is, this is what we look like. We're not going to change that. We don't care if you identify us in a particular way. And so I found amongst the Mexican-American women that I spoke to that it is a sort of tool for them, almost a political tool, whereby they're really asserting their identities in the face of that pressure to assimilate. And I really, really found that to be very powerful and moving within the context of that community. And again, the Chola look has been appropriated in very insensitive ways over the years. So that's another important point to make. Now, also in Iran, I think it's very nuanced in Iran, but I still think it's important to note is that, you know, in, in Iran, women's bodies, as we know, are police. So like the decision to aesthetically enhance your face in particular ways is very intentional, you know, especially when you wear makeup, especially when you wear nail polish, lipstick, eyeliner, especially when you wear your clothes in a certain way, you choose different colors and that kind of thing. It's very intentional. So eyeliner has been worn of course, also in, in Iran for centuries, because it's called sorme there when it is made from natural materials. Um, it has been it has been worn historically in, 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 in sort of some of the ways that we listed earlier, um, you know, medicinally to protect the eyes, to express religiosity and so on. Um, so it takes on kind of a nuanced context in Iran, because I do want to say that sorme or kahal, um, as eyeliner is known in its earliest iterations, was said to have been worn by the Prophet Muhammad per hadith. So that would make it sunnah, permissible for Muslim communities to wear eyeliner in a way that's not necessarily to, to enhance the eye aesthetically, but for other purposes to, to sort of mimic the, the, the Prophet, the ways of the Prophet, as we know. So with the wearing of sorme has almost like been sort of considered permissible but then if you wear eyeliner in a very distinct way to enhance the face to attract attention to it that's where it crosses into sort of different territory so that's a nuance that i explored in the chapter in iran because obviously um you know presenting yourself in a way that attracts attention is 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 is, is forbidden there um and uh, you know, the use of makeup is, is really nuanced as well, but still sorme and eyeliner have been used based on the people that I spoke to in the research that I did as a way for these women to assert, you know, this is, this is my identity. This is how I want to look despite the restrictions imposed upon us. Now, I don't want to be trite and say that this is necessarily strictly a political object, but it is still a object that can potentially be used to assert that, to assert that, you know, th this is this is how the woman wants to present despite restrictions. And particularly after Mahsa Amini's death, and as, as we know, I'm sure you've, you've covered extensively, um, there are a lot of women who start to experiment more, especially online with their looks, where they would have very distinct eyeliner wings, especially amongst the younger generation. So that was really interesting to observe as well. Yeah, I mean, that that's... I've always found that fascinating how certain cultures kind of like draw the line or conservative uh, places between halal of the eyeliner and the haram of it, because like you said, uh, the Prophet Muhammad used it. And I think I use that probably as a very early argument as a teen to my parents saying why it's okay that I'm wearing eyeliner, such thick eyeliner. <laughs> and their response would be, 
yeah, but not this kind of Anna. I know you were, you're kind of like, you know, making it so bold. And I'm, it's, it's pretty amazing how you traveled and how deeply, um, you know, Kohl or eyeliner was, you know, it's embedded in various cultures that, you know, from the Norbads and Chad and which you visited um, to Japan. So was the culture range of eyeliner a surprise to you? Um, I had, I, I was definitely aware that eyeliner is used in different ways across all of these cultures. I think what I really enjoyed an element of the research was like the through line, right? So there is this, this sort of, this item of makeup has been used historically across these cultures in different ways. And, and at the same time, they, they will have commonalities and similarities. For example, the idea of repelling the evil eye. Now, this obviously was, was very much present in ancient Egypt, and it was one of the reasons why eyeliner was worn. But then you also see it in Arab culture. You also see it in um, you know, Japanese culture, whereby like the wearing of red eyeliner is considered a way of repelling the evil spirit. So this is worn by geisha in Japan. And then you also see an Indian, South Asian culture. So you just have this sort of broad range of different cultures with very distinct sort of um, approaches to their aesthetic and their histories. But there's this through line of like, well, they're using eyeliner for this for a similar purpose. And I think the interesting thing is, you know, obviously the eye is sort of so central to our being, right? And it's just this idea of protecting the eye by drawing these lines around the eye is sort of, it's almost obvious when you think about it, but it was really interesting just to study historically and to see, to go through the text some ancient texts and, and so on to see the commonalities there. So I thought that that was really fascinating, but also just, you know, the different approaches to, to, to the idea of beauty, like beauty definitely um, varies from culture to culture, right? I mean, in Chad, the idea of what is beautiful amongst this nomadic group is not the same as what would be considered beautiful in, in sort of Western Eurocentric culture. So that was also really interesting to see the role that eyeliner plays in, in conceptions of beauty, because in Chad, um, they consider sort of the darkness um, of the eyeliner contrasting with the whiteness of the eye, the darkness of one's lips, which they would have um, very dark lipstick on against the whiteness of the teeth and that kind of thing. So that was also interesting too. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting even how a lot of these translated to beauty, beauty products now like you know a lot of people would even use like eye drops as part of their beauty routine to kind of lighten the white parts even more um or you know people were putting in veneers to have whiter teeth or so on so it seems like a lot of these um, as soon as a lot of the beauty standards from different cultures come into the mainstream you know the beauty industry is very happy to kind of like you know jump on it <laughs> to kind of profit from Absolutely. it yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wonder as well, I mean, your book, you, you released it in November and, you know, as um, the whole world is watching Middle East and, you know, the Palestinian-Israel war. Um, how was the reception of the book? Because I, I did see you um, write on social media. It's, it's kind of difficult to kind of, you know, speak about your book during s such a difficult time. Yeah, I'm grateful for you to, uh, to for asking that question. It was it was a a strange time because obviously I was consumed and continue to be consumed um, with, with what is happening in Gaza and 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 Palestine, uh, and and I felt almost a form of, of guilt to even be considering discussing my book at that time when really all of my energies and thoughts and any platforming I was doing was focused on Palestine. At the same time. 
um, it did bring to mind what my mother had told me when I was initially pitching the idea of this book, because my first book dealt with very serious, heavy themes, um, Arab Women on the Ground, a collection of essays by Arab women journalists. And I just sort of felt it might seem jarring for me to go from that kind of serious topic to the topic of eyeliner. Um, and my mother made the point that, you know, this this is also a serious exploration and a study of the beauty of our culture. And these are things that we should be proud of. These are things that we should also devote time to researching and, and amplifying. And that the stories of, of sort of joy and beauty out of our culture are just as important as the stories of tragedy that come out of our culture as well, sadly, and, and what we experience or what is imposed upon us. So... Um, I've kept that with me as an idea because at the time, actually, the Beirut blast had happened when I was initially exploring this idea. And I've kept my mother's words with me. And I do believe very firmly that, that this is this is right. Like, this is something that we should celebrate. And, we, and, and this also leads me to another point of the idea of cultural preservation and heritage. You know, what is happening in Palestine right now is you have serious efforts to, to erase or undermine historical um, heritage and culture. And, you know, the coal making, kohal making is actually a, a very important part of sort of um, uh, Gazan culture, specifically in Gaza. You know, there are there are many um, older women, grandma, grandmothers who make kohal at home and who impart those traditions onto their daughters, who then impart them onto their daughters. And it's a part of Palestinian tradition and culture and heritage. And maintaining that heritage is very, very important in the face of cultural erasure. So for me, I also have been trying to reframe how I think about eyeliner in that way as well, is that it is a fundamental part of Arab culture and other cultures, um, communities of color around the world. And that's to write about it and to explore it is a an extension of that form of preserving the heritage and also celebrating the heritage at the same time. Yeah, so I just so I wanted to ask you as well um you you speak a bit about um you know like how these small businesses kind of like in the early days um used um eyeliner and nefertiti as um, a way for expression uh, for artists, particularly artists of color and uh, black artists. And you touched a little bit on the controversy of a Netflix documentary series on African queens, uh, you know, where Cleopatra, who was um, of Greek descent as a black, you know, she was portrayed as a black African woman uh, and having, um, you know, a black female experts in the trailer insisting that Cleopatra was black. Um you seemed a little bit impartial to that. So I kind of wanted to um, ask, what were your thoughts of that? Yeah, my my goal in the book really was to present facts and to allow people to come to their own conclusion. For me, you know, the, the, the subject of race in ancient Egypt, and there is an expert who said this, and several have said this, it's almost like anachronistic because it's like we're applying modern conceptions of race to an ancient period, right? So I think that that's important to note. I think in terms of the facts, we do know that um, Cleopatra did have um, Greek Macedonian descent. Uh, we also know she may have had some African descent, maybe potentially um, from her mother's side. Um, now, I think the the sort of obsession with portraying her as, as sort of white previously um, you know, I feel I feel like the, the current portrayal of her in the current moment as black should not be as problematic as it has been um, 
made to be. I feel like the, this idea of the proximity to whiteness is sort of something that people have been obsessing over um, for, you know, for centuries, really, and the idea of whiteness and white supremacy. At the same time, I don't think we should neglect facts. Like, I think it is perfectly okay to say that she was of Greek and Macedonian descent, and it's very likely that she was not dark-skinned, right? So um, I think, I think you know, the, the sort of outrage around it was, was just overdone and not necessary, but I also think it's, you know, it's perfectly fine to look at the facts and to, and to say, and, and also an important fact about Cleopatra was that she was most likely not as beautiful as she has been portrayed uh, as being. Yeah, I, mean, I, I noticed oh. the little shade that you threw at Cleopatra in the book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like shade. It was more like our obsession with having to make her seem beautiful because she was able to seduce, you know, who she seduced or like have the power that she wielded. We don't have to make her into a beautiful woman, you know, and I think there is that obsession around her beauty um, and, and just, and also her race, you know, I think, again, it feels anachronistic to me. I think with Nefertiti, it's particularly interesting because we know for sure that she was a woman of color, but even then we do not know her precise racial background. There's, there are theories that she may have been, um, of, of the Mitanni kingdom, which is of Syrian or Levantine descent. Um, she may have been Egyptian. She may, but, but we, you know, again, like the, there's, there's also debate around Nefertiti and her race and her being depicted as black amongst, um, you know, the Afrocentric um, movement whereby, you know, she's, uh, she's not considered as, as black by Egyptian authorities. Right. And it's just this obsession with trying to say she's not black to me is, is inherently problematic when she very likely could have been. And we actually don't really know, and we probably will never know, you know? So I think, um, I think there's just a lot, there's a lot here to unpack, but my role as an author was really just to lay out the facts, what is known, and also to lay out sort of the perceptions of her. Like, I think it is particularly with Nefertiti, um, understandable that she would have, um, you know, black artists celebrating her as, as an, as a queen of color or a black queen. It's understandable that they would be doing that. Um, and that's not something that I would oppose. It's something that I, that I celebrate as well, even though, as I say in the book, we actually do not know officially, um, what, what her race was. We, we know that she was a woman of color for sure. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, I have to I have to kind of jump in as an Egyptian woman to kind of put the Egyptian argument is that, um, you know, there's there's a movement that kind of feels like trying to strip away modern Egyptians from their heritage. And I think a lot of anger comes from that. It's not per se because it was portrayed by a black woman. That is absolutely no problem because we've had a lot of we've never really had Egyptian women on the big screen portraying Egyptians. Uh, we've always had people from different colors or ethnicities. Or we had, you know, like I was looking up an article yesterday, like all the people in history who've um, kind of co- uh, like, you know, played Egyptian queens and, you know, they're all foreign. And um, it's only very recently when we kind of had like, you know, Egyptian actors um, kind of representing. Um, but yeah, the, the notion of a black woman playing Cleopatra isn't the issue at all. It was the idea of trying to take away um, Egyptian heritage from the Egyptians to say that they, you know, some conspiracies saying that we were put into Egypt as kind of like by the Europeans and we have no ties to our culture, no ties to our Egyptian queens. And I think that was what was the argument from the Egypt side. 
Yeah, sure, sure. I think that, I think there's also, there is an element, I think, of racism, unfortunately. That's not necessarily what you're talking about. I think that different groups and different people try to co-opt arguments in different ways. Um, but I think that, that your point um, is really important. I also want to make the point that, you know, Egypt is like a multiracial society and very likely, um, you know, was multiracial yeah. in ancient Egypt as well. And that's an important point to make as well, that we don't need to be absolutely 100% sure that Egyptians looked one way because they looked very, very different. You know, mm-hmm. there was, but it's that idea, right, of like, what is beautiful, you know, per- portraying an Egyptian queen, you know, at the time as white, you know, even, you know, or she, you know, she's of course of Greek ancestry, was palatable to the West. You know, it's palatable because she was able to then have this exotic aesthetic, but actually she was fair-skinned. And this is very palatable to the West, right? So I think that obviously what we're seeing now is a counter to that. And even if it might not be 100% accurate, I think that that's a reaction to some of that obsession to the proximity with whiteness, right? Um, even though I understand, of course, what, what you're saying about the Egyptian reaction as well. But I think all of that is really important because you see that like this object, eyeliner, has all of these arguments swirling around it. And it's kind of shocking when you think about it. But like this, you know, the popularity of Cleopatra impacted eyeliner sales. And that all has to do with the conception of beauty at the time. What I want people to take away from the book is that, you know, there is really so much more to eyeliner than meets the eye. So when you're putting eyeliner on, I want people to realize that like it has all of that history there and and the history is there to be learned, you know, and I would love for people um, to look at eyeliner in a different way after reading this book in the same way you feel about eyeliner as well. I feel like I'm adorning my face with my heritage when I put eyeliner on and I won't deny that it makes me look better. I will say that, but it's more than that. I love that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Zahra. Thank you, Ala. This has been such a delight. I appreciate it. This has been the lead from New Lines magazine. You can buy Zahra's book, Eyeliner, A Culture History, in all good bookstores, and follow her on Twitter at Zahra Hankir. This week's episode was produced by Finbar Anderson and hosted by me, Ala Salim. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app and visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Please rate us in your favorite podcast app. It really helps us grow a big audience. And see you next week.